We live in a time when everyone is a preacher. Our world is filled with teachers. In our postmodern world, truth is relative, yet everyone thinks their interpretation of the world is truth. So everyone is loudly shouting their doctrine to the world. They use media, Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, blogs, YouTube channels, podcasts, and even Instagram. How they do that? They do it with pictures. I know, really strange, but everybody's preaching. Everyone is a prophet in their own eyes. But none of us really have authority to speak. We are all just created beings. We are just sinful people. We all think our opinion is great, but ultimately the only opinion that matters is God's opinion. Our opinions are great in our own eyes, but still faulty because of our sinfulness. However, I have the great privilege of sharing with you today Jesus' message, his sermon, his interpretation of the world, and how we should follow him, and how we should live in light of his kingdom to come. Today we begin our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and I have good news for you. Jesus' sermon is perfect, no fault, and exactly what is true. A perfect authoritative interpretation of the world and how we must live in it. So today we need to know and embrace Christ's message fully. Jesus was offering the kingdom to his people, Israel. They were required to repent and turn to him. They were called to wholehearted commitment in him. By this point in his ministry, Jesus had called a few of his disciples, but not all of them. Matthew, in fact, the one who writes this down later, appears to become a disciple later as it is worded in Matthew chapter 9. He was not speaking to the 12 apostles, most likely. Some of the apostles were there, but not all of them. Because, as I said, Matthew or Levi had not been called yet. The disciples mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1, probably included some of John's disciples because John the Baptist had been taken into custody as Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 states. John had been imprisoned, so maybe some of his disciples had now become disciples of Jesus. Jesus was teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing people, and many were following him. Last week we saw the Sermon on the Mount was the king's instruction to his kingdom citizens as they waited on the arrival of the kingdom. We saw that the Sermon on the Mount applies to us exactly as it applies to those first century disciples of Jesus. We saw that the effect was twofold. First, this sermon should show us that we need righteousness and forgiveness from outside ourselves. We can't be good enough. We're not righteous in and of ourselves. No one should be able to read or hear or study this sermon and think, I'm good, or I'm good enough, or I'm righteous. The sermon levels the playing ground. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. Repentance is necessary for every one of us in the room. The second effect is, 
we should be encouraged to pursue sanctification, holiness, righteousness as we pursue Christ. This sermon shows us how we should live and what we should strive for and how we should look in this world. This sermon is instruction on present living in the lost world in light of the future kingdom to come. Living in a wicked world with eyes on a future with our king in his kingdom. Jesus' disciples are to be light in this world. We are to be different from the world. We are to live, live as kingdom citizens, even if this world is not our kingdom. So I want to ask a question, and I want you to think on it. Don't answer out loud. Think on it for a second. Who was the sermon for? The crowd or the disciples? It's a trick question. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it states, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... So when you look at this, you say, Hey, well, it's at first glance, it reads like it's a personal talk with his disciples alone. Well, the crowd's there. He went up on the mountain. Did the crowds follow him up on the mountain, or was he by himself? It doesn't really say that. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. The them, is that referring to the disciples only, or the crowd, or both? Good question, right? Well, I think at first glance, it looks like he's talking to his disciples primarily. But then look over at Matthew chapter 7, the end of the sermon. The end of the sermon. In chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, it states at the end of the sermon... When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching who? Them, as one having authority and not as their scribes. So who's the sermon for? The disciples or the crowd? Hmm. Well, by the end, it seems as though he's talking to the crowd. Because it says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. So who's he talking to? Yes is the answer. Yes is the answer. Obviously, by the end, at least, the sermon, the crowd was hearing and hearing what he was saying. On top of that, the sermon itself has many places where Jesus was calling for an evaluation of whether they were right with God and subtly calling for initial repentance and faith for those lost in the crowd. I see Jesus' focus, yes, as much like a target, He's focused in on his disciples. He's got the disciples first in mind. Those are the yellow, the center. He's focused on them, talking mainly to them. But there's others around there that are getting the message. And so he can speak to both at the same time. It would be very much like this crowd right here. As we talk through the gospel and we talk through this passage, there are some in here that are followers of Jesus, disciples. And then there are some that are thinking about becoming a disciple of Jesus. And then there's some that say they're disciples of Jesus, but they're really not disciples of Jesus. And then there's some that really are anti-Jesus, but they're here. And then there's some in here that say, what in the world am I doing here? There's a crowd, let's get here. Well, I have some good news for you. 
the effect should be the same for all of us. For us that are disciples already, we know and are affirmed that our justification, our right standing with God is not found in us, right? This sermon will remind us of that. But it also will call us as believers, followers, to live for him. And if you're not a believer and you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior yet and you think, well, I think I'm good enough to go to heaven. Well, as we go through this sermon, if you think that at the end, you've missed the point of the whole sermon because none of us are good enough. All of us need a Savior. All of us need to repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone. So, consider Jesus. He is good. So today we start with the Beatitudes. I'm hoping to spend a couple of weeks on these uh, Beatitudes, these first 11 or 12 verses. These are a goldmine of truth. I, I would encourage you all to seek to memorize these as we're going through these. And no, I'm not going to do the Martin Lloyd-Jones and do one Beatitude a week. I'm going to try to do a few more than just one. But there is some great truth here. And I would encourage all of you to seek to memorize the Beatitudes as we make our way through them. And even listen to other sermons. Other people that have preached on this. Like it was mentioned in Sunday school. Uh, John MacArthur. and uh, Get the book by Martin Lloyd-Jones and read the Sermon on the Mount. It's huge. It's amazing. Great truth. The Beatitudes show us God's favor is on the disciples of Christ despite the hardships they now face. We'll see this, God's favor. There is joy in the disciples of Christ because God has graciously poured out his favor on us despite the world we live in. There are nine Beatitudes listed in Matthew 3 to 12. The first and the eighth are really bookends. The first one and the eighth one are bookends. The ninth one is somewhat of an overview and an expansion of the first eight. Notice in verse 11, it states in verse 11, notice it says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now notice it doesn't say, for they shall... At this point, he says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it's somewhat of an overview, this last one, a summary of the whole section. The second and the seventh beatitude focus on the coming rewards of the kingdom citizens, despite the disciples' present struggles and trials and difficulties. The first and the eighth Focus on the present status of the kingdom citizens, disciples of Jesus in light of their present circumstances. In other words, we are kingdom citizens. We have a place reserved for us in heaven. This is how we live. It's already set. We're established. We have this position. Then the others talk about what we will get in light of who we are, the rewards. The Beatitudes are like little proverbs. Each one gives Christ's explanation of the disciples' life in this lost world. They are short statements that stand in direct opposition to much of what the world teaches and hails today and even then. The world's thinking contradicts most of what Jesus said in these proverb-like statements. However, Jesus proclaims his authoritative interpretation of the world. 
and how his disciples should live in it. Again, if you're tempted to pick up Facebook and get some kind of information while you're here, listen, his word is a lot better than Facebook. Put it away. Those things don't matter. Jesus spoke with authority. This is what we need to know. Each statement begins with the word blessed. There's much discussion over what this word means in its context. I believe the shallower definition, happy, is insufficient. You know, y'all have heard it before. Happy are those. Happy are those. I think that word leaves a little bit, or that definition leaves a little bit. I think this one fits a little better. The definition, blessed, God's gracious favor that produces fullness of joy. God's blessed favor that produces fullness of joy. Or a shorter one, divinely favored with fullness of joy. That's who we are. We're divinely favored with fullness of joy. So, you could read it this way. Divinely favored with fullness of joy are the poor in spirit. Divinely favored with fullness of joy are those who mourn. Wait a second. How can we have joy, fullness of joy, and mourn? We'll talk about that today. Divinely favored with fullness of joy are the gentle. Divinely favored with fullness of joy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Skipping down, you come down to the eighth one. Divinely favored with fullness of joy are those who have been persecuted. That doesn't sound like divine favor, does it? With fullness of joy? Are we? Absolutely. Absolutely. You'll see why in a little bit. Think about how antithetical these statements are to the world's thinking. Divinely favored are the poor in spirit. Graciously blessed are those who mourn. Full of joy over God's blessing are the meek or gentle. That doesn't sound anything like what the world would say, does it? These proverbial statements are characteristics of, an entire, of, of the entire sermon. The Beatitudes are diametrically opposed to how the world thinks and how our own flesh thinks, beloved. Listen closely. This sermon should alter the way we think. It flies against our thoughts, doesn't it? It goes against how we think. It flew against everything that the self-righteous religious Pharisees and scribes said too. It went directly opposition to it. And it flies against the self-righteous pride that's still dwelling in all of our souls too. No one is born thinking the Beatitudes. <laughs> Nobody is, comes out thinking, oh, comes out thinking, oh, I'm favored by God and full of joy to mourn. It just doesn't make sense. No one considers brokenness synonymous with divine favor and fullness of joy. But this is kingdom thinking from our king. We all must recognize that all that this sermon says, everything that the whole Sermon on the Mount is about, goes completely against all that you're hearing from the world. And it will fly and go against what our thinking is too. 
We all need to have our minds and our hearts renewed daily, don't we? Even right now, we can be tempted to think wrong things and think high of ourselves and elevate ourselves. And this is going to smash every one of our preconceived notions of thinking that we're something and we've got it all figured out. This is why we have to be careful of how much we allow the world to inform our thinking. I cannot stress this enough. And I think this is why we should focus on this. And I think this is why Matthew focuses on the sermons of Jesus. This is how we should think about the world. It is the commentary on the world that we all need. We go everywhere trying to find out what the world means. Aren't we? We're entertained by our entertainment. It, it tells us. Our entertainment informs. Our teachers, our social media, the news. And all of these influences say the exact opposite of what the Beatitudes say, doesn't it? Everywhere we go. And by the way, I think that goes against all, all political parties too. Everybody. The world models the opposite of what the Beatitudes. The world teaches the opposite. The world requires the opposite. But our king, the righteous one, he has the right interpretation, the right commentary on how we should live. We must be discerning what we listen to and realize that Jesus has given us what we should think and how we should think. So, let's walk down through these Beatitudes. You ready to go? Let's start with the first one. The first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, where's the outline? There it is. <laughs> it's the first one. Not confusing. Blessed are the pure, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does poor in spirit mean? I don't believe this sermon is the same as Luke's sermon on the plateau, by the way. I think that they have some similarities, but in Luke's account, I think it's a different account. I think that much like some of the other itinerant preachers throughout the ages, Jesus would preach a sermon and it would apply and have different emphasis at different audiences. And so he could say somewhat of the same sermons at different places and have different emphasis. Here he's talking about the heart, the poor in spirit. I believe the emphasis in this sermon is different from that sermon in Luke. Here Jesus is emphasizing the broken spirit of the contrite sinner. It's, it is the disciple who is fully aware of his own insufficiency in light, of his, in, in light of the glory of God. This is the godly sorrow over sin that produces repentance. Here are some of the different definitions of poor in spirit I want you to think on. First from Glasscock, quote, The poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual need. In contrast to the proud and self-righteous, they sense their spiritual emptiness and express humility, not arrogance. That is, those are the poor in spirit. Second from R.C. or J.C. Ryle, rather, R.C. Sproul. J.C. Ryle, all these initials. J.C. Ryle, quote, He means the humble and lowly-minded and self-abased. He means those who are deeply convinced of their own sinfulness in God's sight, 
We must begin low if we would build high, says J.C. Ryle. And then Carson, D.A. Carson, to be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. It confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence upon Him. Okay, so who are the poor in spirit? They're the humble. They're the ones that know who God is and they realize that they're nothing compared to Him. We understand our unworthiness. We sang holy, holy, holy at the beginning, right? It's those that know the holiness of God. A scripture should come to mind. Which one? Isaiah 6. When Isaiah saw the Lord, what did he say? He said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those that realize that they're ruined in light of who God is. Those are the ones that understand that there is nothing to boast in in and of ourselves. Nothing about me is special. As a matter of fact, I'm a wicked sinner apart from God's grace. Woe is me. Another passage that comes to mind is Luke chapter 18. Look over there. Luke chapter 18. Look at Luke 18. Jesus gives a parable and gives a beautiful picture of the poor in spirit. Here it is. It's a contrast with the self-righteous Pharisee. The contrast between the poor in spirit and the proud in spirit. Here it is. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Boy, this is who Jesus was dealing with. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the natural question is, is which one do you look like? (laughs) Which one do you look like? Do you look like the Pharisee that thinks you're better than everyone else? Or do you look like the broken tax collector that realizes his own sinfulness and his need of a savior and need of mercy Oh, beloved, this is a totally different kind of picture than we want to see. This is not what the world tells us, right? The world says over and over and over, have confidence in yourself, doesn't it? 
think you're something special. That's what the world tells you. But the word of God says that in light of a holy and perfect and just and righteous God, we are what? Nothing. Woe is me. Can you imagine a church filled with people that were poor in spirit? What would they be like? They'd be a bunch of dependent people, dependent upon Christ, humble Exalting Christ always and never exalting themselves. No one pitching their own agenda, but everybody saying, Jesus is Lord, let me get out of the way. That's what kingdom citizens look like. We should stand out as a stark difference from the world, shouldn't we? Again, this is totally opposite of the world. The world that says, I have it all figured out, listen to me, I'm speaking, is what the world says. The poor in spirit says what? I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to listen. That's what the poor in spirit says. The poor in spirit says, I'm not even worthy to be up here saying this. I'm not. I have to confess to you, this has been absolutely impossible to study for all week. Because every time you start preaching and thinking on this, and this is what this means, you walk out and your kid does something and you go, okay, how would poor in spirit look? Steel-toed boots all week long. Painful. As Lloyd-Jones stated, this poor in spirit is the ultimate antithesis to the world's emphasis on belief and self-reliance, self-confidence, and self-expression. Right? But you need to listen to me. That's what the world says. But true followers of Christ think much of Christ so therefore they think very little of themselves. Not to get attention, by the way. Not to, again, you can fall into the reverse of it, of saying, woe is me, look at me, I'm so horrid. And be actually being proud in that. Taking pride in your self-abasement. I'm nothing. Look at me, I'm nothing. That can be bad too. That can be right. Oh, beloved, listen. How about this? The poor in spirit never say, look at me. They stand off from the distance, crying out to God, please have mercy on me, the sinner. So how do we know if we are poor in spirit? Well, if we see our sin as much as we see everyone else's sin. That's a good way to see if you're poor in spirit. If you see everybody else's sin more than your own, that's not poor in spirit. That's proud in heart. 
If everything is a critic, if you're always a critic and all you see is everybody else blowing it, there's a problem. The self-righteous religious Pharisees worked hard to think much of themselves, didn't they? But we who are followers of Christ realize we're nothing apart from Christ. So how do we know if we're poor in spirit? If we see our sinfulness in other people's sin as another way. What do I mean by that? Will you ever find yourself getting angry at somebody because they do something that really perturbs you? Like, why is he always like this? Ever find yourself doing that? He's always doing this. The poor in spirit says, I don't like it because I'm like it. I don't like that in myself. And I know I have just as much of a propensity to it apart from God's grace. Often we have a tendency to stand in judgment of others instead of recognizing the same sins in our own hearts. If our excuse is often this, I'm glad I'm not like that person, then we're just like that Pharisee. And we're not poor in spirit because we think highly of ourselves. How do we know if we're poor in spirit? If you think collectively about sin, then self-righteousness about other sin. In other words, if, if you're thinking, man, a good example is what you see in Isaiah when he says, woe is me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And what he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, I am live amongst the people of unclean lips. In other words, do you find yourself doing this? I know I do. This hurts. This was stepping on the toes. Where I look out and I say, man, our community is just so wicked. And I think collectively, but I don't think of myself in that community. I see myself as pointing down on them at times instead of seeing myself in the community. You understand, folks. You know what America's problem is? You ready? Me. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. We are collectively sinful people. And we need Christ. Have mercy on us, Father. Have mercy on us. Change my heart, God. You know how you can tell it? Another good evidence is how we react with family members. How we react with family members. When we react to it and we're constantly putting down our own family members, thinking I'm better. I, do, I don't do that. You do that. Forgetting that we are them. We're just like them apart from God's grace. And that's what causes us to be broken in spirit and realizing God is the one that we need, not me to clean this world up. I need God. 
How do we know if we're poor in spirit? If we're regularly repenting. If we're constantly crying out to God. Who do you confront the most, beloved? Who repents the most in your home, in your community, and in your workplace? Do you understand the poor in spirit are the ones that are repenting all the time? That's who we are, aren't we? But we confront the world all the time, and we don't confront our own hearts and our own wicked thoughts near enough. How in the world is the divine favor of God? How is this the divine favor of God if you're broken of your sinfulness? It is. <laughs> and there's a great joy in this, isn't there? Because we find that at the end of ourselves, we find that we are insufficient, but God is sufficient. And that God is all we want and need. And that Christ Jesus is our hope, not myself. I'm nothing. He's everything. Way to go, God. That's who I want. And there's a great joy in that, isn't there? That is true happiness. Because I don't know about you guys, but I get no happiness in how good I am. How about you? No, I fail at this. But friends, we get great joy, great joy from brokenness because we find Jesus is all sufficient. So how are the poor in spirit blessed? Look at the last little phrase. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are presently, positionally sharers in the kingdom of heaven. We are heirs. We are blessed despite our brokenness because we are presently kingdom citizens headed towards heaven. We who are confessing our sins and acknowledging our need of Christ, we have hope. And what is our hope? Heaven. We're citizens of heaven. So the first one, who are favored by God and joyful, they are the poor in spirit. They are favored by God and happy because their kingdom is in heaven. Our joy is in our position in Christ and in our home, in our future home with him. More than this present world's affirmations of goodness and worldly possessions, right? If somebody tells you, hey, you have so much. Yes, I do have so much. And they say, you have, you know, a house and a wife and kids. And yes, those things are blessings too. But the greatest blessing I have is that this wicked sinner is a heavenly citizen. I'm a citizen of God's kingdom and that Christ loves me. That's our big joy, isn't it? So our prayer is, Father, make us aware of our own sinfulness so that we will what? Get our hope in him, not ourselves. And that our hope and our promise will be in the future not in this world. The second beatitude, look at it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Favored by God, joyful are those who mourn. What are disciples of Christ mourning over? What are we mourning over? Well, there's plenty to mourn over, isn't there? This week has been a especially sad week, hasn't it? 17 murdered children in a school. That's grieving, isn't it? Horrible death on display everywhere. And every time I hear about children dying, it comes back in my head, but then there's another 3,500 aborted every day. Murder, death, people dying all the time. There is sadness here, isn't there? We are constantly mourning. I think also there's a mourning that includes the prospering of the wicked. We see people that are just horrible doing great. (laughs) Why did they get such a voice? (laughs) Why are they so powerful and popular? These people hate God. That's mourning, isn't it? It creates sadness in us, doesn't it? There's unchecked wickedness of people everywhere we look. Can you imagine being Jesus, the God-man? That's why he was known as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He saw it all, and he knew what it was about. There's mourning all over. How many of you have lost loved ones that you're just you're grieved over, right? Sadness. Loved ones, co-workers, friends, neighbors, pain and ugliness everywhere. It's enough to make us all cry, isn't it? Blessed, favored by God, and full of joy are those who mourn. Friends, we trust in Christ, though. He's our hope. And despite our tears and the mourning over the world, there is hope and his name is Christ. And we turn from our sins and we turn from ourselves and we turn from our expectations and hope in the world and we turn to him. And we know one day we will be comforted. And our joy and our hope and, our, and the favor of God is, is that we will be comforted one day. We are blessed because our kingdom to come will be free from this pain and this hurt and this mourning and this sadness. I'm looking forward to that day. How about you? And we live in this day. We live in this day with an eye on the future, don't we? This psalm has been really close to my heart this last couple of weeks. I read it in one of the commentaries. Psalm 119. 136, Psalm 119, 136, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Streams of water. Who are we? (laughs) Who are we, disciples of Christ? What do we look like? We look like people that are constantly crying. 
streams of water coming from our eyes as we look out into the world and see the world hating God and turning away from him. Not in a judgmental way, not that we think we're better than them because we realize we're a part of it, aren't we? But just sad. But we're blessed. We're favored by God because we understand that our hope is not in this world. We mourn over this world, but we know our hope is in the future where we will be comforted. This doesn't work. I know it's, it, it, it goes against everything we're taught in our world, right? Because our world tells us that it's all about be, having two cars, a house, 1.5 kids, and a nice wife or a spouse. The world's all... I know, 1.5. How do you have that? Elliot's up here going, what? It's all about what? The world tells you it's all about here. It's all about what you have here. But we're blessed. We're favored by God and joyful, not because our value is here. We mourn over this world. We're favored by God and joyful because we will be comforted over the pain that we experience here. Every tear will be wiped away for those who believe in Christ Jesus. And all of us long for that day, don't we? Finally, let's cover the third beatitude. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The Greek word for gentle can also be translated meek. The idea behind meek or or gentle here is not easily offended, is the idea. Look at this. This is good. J.C. Ryle, great definition. Those who are of a patient and contented spirit, they are willing to put up with the little honor here below. They can bear injustices without resentment. They are not ready to take offense. That is the meek. That is the gentle. Carson states, the absence of pretensions, pretension, but includes gentleness to be, to be implies freedom from malice and vengefulness spirit. In other words, you're not meek if you're always trying to get the person back. You understand? He's going to develop this in the sermon. The one who patiently waits for God to judge justly those who are mistreated. Do you understand? In other words, we're not the hero. And we allow Jesus to be the hero. We have courage. We have courage in the face of what? Opposition. But we don't look at it as if I'm going to win. I'm going to beat you down. I was taught this by some. Not all. My mom's here. In my family. If somebody hits you in the face... Hit them back harder so they don't get up. The one that doesn't get up, lost. The one that's still standing, wins. Y'all have heard it, right? That is not blessed are the meek. That's the world.
the Lord says what? If somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other. Blessed are the meek. A meek person can spiritually be spiritually strong, but are so trusting in the Lord that they allow the Lord to fight their battles. And they are patient in allowing him to work when and how he wants to work. It rely, a meek person is somebody who relies on the Lord completely. They're not quick-tempered. Very important. A quick-tempered person is not a gentle person. You know those people, right? Where you're around them and all of a sudden you're like walking on eggshells all the time, whether or not you speak, oh, gonna, whoa, here comes another one. And you, can, can I ask you a question without you getting offended? Hmm, pain, get off my toes, right? The meek person is slow to anger, slow to react, gentle, patient. Why? Because we know who's king. We know who's Lord. Put yourself for just a second in Jesus' place right before the cross. Do you understand as they mocked him and beat him. Hail, king of the Jews. Do you understand that he had all the power and the world to kill every single one of them at that split second? He could have said, you're dead. They would have all died. He could have made them suffer. But he endured. And he entrusted himself to the Father. Listen to me closely, beloved. The best way to see whether you're meek is to look at your reactions to things. Your reaction. What I mean by that? If you're if you're Quick to speak, quick to react, quick to rebuke. Always thinking, oh, you're wrong. Oh, I got a better idea. That's not a meek person. That's not somebody that's patient and looking to the Lord and depending upon him and calculated in what he says. And slow to speak, and slow to anger. Anybody else feeling a little bit of conviction? If not, you might not be breathing. 